Last year, I was accepted into the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB Financial. The founder, Karen Unland, has partnered with ATB Financial to bring local Albertan podcasts to bring to you local Albertans by connecting local sponsors from Alberta to us. Sponsors like the TELUS World of Science Edmonton, home of the Canadian debut of Marvel, Universe of Superheroes. This special exhibition runs until February 17th in Edmonton. It will feature more than 300 artifacts, costumes, props, and interactive elements to bring the Marvel Universe to life. Imagine traveling through the mysterious mirror dimension of Doctor Strange, digitally transforming into Iron Man, and posing for selfies with Black Panther, Spider-Man, and other iconic Marvel characters. Visit TELUSWORLDOFSCIENCEEDMONTON.CA to buy tickets and check on special hotel deals if, like me, you're not actually in Edmonton. Hey, Marvel fans, this is the only place in Canada right now where you can see this exhibition. A little while ago, I had the pleasure of sitting down with my friend Kane Chow. I first met Kane when my wife and I moved to Calgary a few years ago. There was a tiny little hidden shop called Kokidama Atelier at the back of a men's store called Stuff For Him. Quick shout out to the owner, Spencer, who's been my biggest supporter as a visual artist. My wife was already a fan of Kokidama, but I was amazed when I saw these weird tiny trees and plants growing out of moss balls. From then, we have become good friends with Kane as an entrepreneur, artist, parent, and recently a transitioning female. Kane and I sat down and spoke about her life leading today, the parallels between pushing out of the corporate world and her movement to find her own identity were fascinating, and I'm planning to continue our conversation, provided she likes what she hears on this one. Here's what I'd like to label part two of part one, because I messed up the audio of our first attempt at this. Allow me to introduce you to my friend, Kane Chow. Check her work out at kokedama.ca. Good start. Okay. Hi, King. <laughs> how are you? Good. How are you? I'm okay. This is take two. Uh, thanks for letting me see you again. Of course. <laughs> no. um, Anytime. I don't know if this will stay on the recording, but just for the record, uh, you did let me come here. We were here for like over an hour and a half, almost two hours last time. It was kind of crazy. Um, but I fucked up the audio. So uh, we'll try this again and more focus this time. So maybe I'll start with, um, let's talk about uh, a quick introduction of yourself and uh, kind of, you know, what it is that you do. And, um, and then we'll kind of talk about hopefully how we started doing something so strange. Yeah. 
Hi, my name is Kane. My pronouns are she and her. And I am an artist. I work with plants. And the planting style that I work in is called Kokidama. Um, but really, my job and uh, sort of my art is a platform for reaching people. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, very ambiguous. So let's maybe I'll ask you the first question, which is uh, this: you know, like what is Kokedama, and what like what is it? Where does it come from? Why do you do it? Where did you find it? When did you find it? I mean, you make these things. Uh, it's very unique. So maybe you can give me an idea of how you discovered it and uh, yeah, and what it is exactly. Koke dama is a Japanese planting style. And in Japanese, koke means moss and dama means a ball or an egg-like shape. So the Japanese have literally named the, the planting style moss ball plants. And I discovered Kokidama while researching bonsai. And I really wanted to get into bonsai, but Calgary is very much not a bonsai place. Um, trees, uh, even planted outside, are challenged at best when you plant new trees. And um, so bonsai trees are uh, sort of super duper challenging because of our weather here. And bonsai felt really, really intimidating. It felt like if I didn't have a mentor that I would screw it up and that I wouldn't be doing real, in air quotes, bonsai. Um, and I really wanted, I really wanted to do it properly. I'll put that properly in air quotes as well. Um, but while researching bonsai um, and having bonsai feel more and more intimidating, I stumbled on Kokidama on some Japanese websites and it looked really approachable. You could use whatever plants you wanted. So you can use like any of the cheap tropical plants that you can get you know, at the garden centers or even at um, like Canadian Tire or Home Depot. Um, and it seemed like it just a really easy thing that I could play with and there was no, you know, rules around it and um, and you kind of just had to put a ball around the roots of a plant and then wrap that with moss and um, you had kokedama, for, you know, as the name implies, the moss ball plant. Like is this something that's a lot of people do in Japan or is it also fairly unique? strange quirky thing in japan as well um it's a little bit more known in japan um but even in japan it's it's somewhat niche it's not like you're gonna walk down the street and just see it everywhere but by the same token you don't just walk down some street in japan and see um bonsai everywhere um but it's really quite a young um planting style and uh, so even in Japan, it's um, just kind of starting to gain popularity. And when I say young, it's kind of like probably like 50 to 60 years. Hmm. Um, so yeah, so let's talk about 
you, you're, even the bonds that you, what's happening? Where were you coming from um, initially, let's say career-wise or personally that you were trying to get into bonds? I mean, that in itself is such a strange leap all of a sudden. Um, I love the idea of a lot of Japanese ceremonial things. Uh, I'm just obsessed in some sense uh, with a lot of their cultural uh, ideologies, but um, I've never once thought I should commit my life into uh, suddenly uh, buying a tree and spending my life shaping it. Uh, presumably, I don't even know what the art form itself is. And, and, and the Kokodama, the same thing. So um, what were you doing before you discovered it that led you to needing to do this? That's a good question. I, I like the way that you put it, like needing to do it. And um, I mean, I was raised as the uh, eldest male heir to the family name. Um, my dad is the youngest of all his, um, of all the male um, siblings in his family. Um, but he, he was the one to have boys and all of his brothers had girls. And so in, um, sort of Asian culture, um, I don't know the, the sort of the name lineage is, is sort of, um, a, a big boys deal. It's, yeah. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah. And so that's how I grew up and I grew up, um, you know, sort of dutifully fulfilling that role and, um, you know, go to school, and um, uh, despite my Asian looks, I was not good at math, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, I got my high school degree, went to university. Um, I wanted to get into engineering, but math was poor, so engineering was not my thing. Um, you know, I, I wanted to become an engineer to build things, but... Um, since I couldn't do that, I sort of fell into um, computer science. And I thought, if I can't build physical things, I will build virtual things. Fell into computer science. That's pretty funny. Um, I so, fell into sort of serving tables and, and drinking too much. But okay, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> um, and that's just that nerdy part of me. Um, I'm very much uh, more of a hacker than a software developer. I always wanted to learn just enough to um, complete a project. Like, I want to do this. Like, what are the things I need to know to, to do it? I don't need to know all of the things around everything in the, you know, sort of in the sphere. Um, and so I, yeah, so I got my computer, no, what is it? Bachelor of Science with a focus on computer science. Um, I went and I got a job. It took me, well, it took me a little while to finish university, but in my last semester where I was taking one class only, I was already working uh, for a startup. And um, so when I got, when I finished my degree, I continued working for that startup and I had a software, like a 16 year software development degree or not degree, a uh, career, um, six year degree, <laughs> which is, you know, not fantastic. Well, five and a half. Um, but yeah, I was in software development for 16 years. Um, and when I discovered Kokedama, I was still, um, I was still, uh, working as a software developer. I think I 
been, I think it was in my first stint in oil and gas, my first and only stint in oil and gas. Um, and that ended up being, you know, the software ended up being very virtual. Um, it got to the point where I would do a full days of work at um, the oil and gas company or whatever. And then I would go home and it would kind of feel like I hadn't done anything at all. It just oh. didn't feel real. It's like, I don't know, playing with electrons inside a computer and like, I don't know, magnetic charges on hard drives and whatever. Um, and then the other factor was that software development, um, a lot of times is very sort of, um, especially since I worked in a lot of startups, um, very high pressure, very fast paced. And I was very, very good at taking home my work, uh, not physically, but, uh, mentally and then, um, emotionally, let's say. And so I would get home and I would be really um, spiritually still at work. And um, when I, and I think I was looking for something more than that, something physical, um, something that felt real. And um, probably, you know, that's kind of where the bonsai thing came from. Like I wasn't a plant person before. And um, when I started doing Kokedama, that, Somewhere between starting making one and finishing one, I would find that I would come back home and, you know, kind of come back to real life. Metaphorically. Yeah. I, just a quick, I mean, I just had this thought, is there a way to um, visual, I, I don't know, um, auditorially vi visualize um, what that's, I mean, uh, when we spoke before, it seems like your 16 year career, there were uh, different stints with different types of company, companies, but I mean, is there sort of a, a picture you can paint about what a software designer's life is like? You know, are you, is it the, is it the desk picture from the old sort of um, um, office mentality where you sit in a cubicle and everybody's typing on a computer? Is it the new age sort of digital nomad thing where you're just lying down on a couch and you're sitting on a laptop? Uh, like what, what was your experience leading into this moment? Was it, you know, is there a color you'd associate? It is actually dull grays and browns and, and just flatline was there excitement like what where what was that 16 years like uh, sort of as a maybe there's a metaphor i don't know is there a way to to uh, break that down into into kind of a something you can understand your experience of yeah i think when i you know at the uh, in the early part of my career it was very it was really exciting i was like learning new things all the time um, in startups, especially like the smaller the startup, the more things you get to touch. Um, and, you know, I was writing, you know, front end software and back end software. Um, so front end software means like the, the software that you see, like when you're using the software, like that's what you see. Um, back end software is usually, um, stuff where lots of data processing is happening and, and, um, you know, that kind of thing. And then, um, you know, I got to work with databases and building um, test servers and um, 
um, you know, sort of that kind of thing. I got to get, like, I got to touch lots and lots of stuff. And um, I think that really appealed to the, the hacker sort of part of me, like, okay, we have this thing that we want to build and it's like, okay, where are all the pieces that we need? And, um, and as I think as my career progressed and like I got into some larger companies like um, um, Symantec, I worked for them for like two and a half years before they closed their office here. Um, and they had like, there's, when you need database stuff, you talk to the, 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 the database guy. And um, if you're in working on backend stuff, that's what you do. Um, or if you're working on front end stuff, like that's what you do. You know, you kind of don't touch the other things and you interface with other teams. Um, that was really tough for me, I think. And um, it kind of just got <laughs> worse from there. Um, and then, you know, I hit oil and gas. And um, um, for me, that was a little bit soul sucking. And I got to the point where I was like, oh, well, like somebody has to do this, but it doesn't have to be me. Um, and like, and I ended up switching jobs a lot when I wasn't in the startup space because I would get into a new job and I would sort of, I would learn all the things in a year. And then I would spend maybe a, another half year or another year kind of working through them and sort of perfecting my understanding of them. And then I would like, usually a year and a half, I would start getting really bored. Um, and for me, if I am not learning, I feel like I'm going backwards. Um, and, oh, that's funny. I don't, maybe that's why software got to be feeling really virtual and feeling not real when you've done a certain amount of software, I would say. Um, it just becomes software after a while. And maybe I just got tired of it where it was like, it's just software. I don't really care. I was thinking, listening to that, I was just thinking about, you know, presumably, because I don't make kokedama uh, or uh, take care of plants, but when you're describing the beginning, the exciting part of your career and being able to touch the uh, front end, back end, um, it's like making a kokedama, like understanding the back, like let's say the roots and how the moss works and learning about that. Whereas the speciation, the specialization, uh, sorry, when the specialization when you got up to the sort of higher corporate would be like, your job is to simply uh, dust one leaf, you know, eight hours a day. And don't worry about the roots. We got root people doing the roots and don't worry about the moss. We got moss people doing the moss. You just do this every single day. Uh, but it, it, I just had this sudden uh, image, you know, when you described the startup of you actually having to build one of these things. <laughs> yeah, I think that would drive me crazy. Yeah. Just like, or just being a root person. It's fascinating. Okay, so, um, yeah, having coming, coming, having come from a uh, yeah corporate environment, 
The more I reflect though, my corporate experience is probably a little bit abnormal, but a corporate environment anyways, and uh, not liking it. Um, I can understand the appeal of doing your own thing. You find Kokedama. So what is it? How do you how do you learn to do this? And what is it about it that keeps you compelled? I mean, it's been a few years now. You've got a whole business and identity around mm -hmm. it. Uh, it wasn't, I mean, it was a hobby to start, but um, what was it that connected with you, I guess, uh, as you went through it? Um, so definitely there was the physical aspect of it. Um, you know, working in an office and computers, it's like everything I touch is plastic, just about. Um, and that's a reality for a lot of people. And But Kokedama was like, I got to touch the plants and there's like all these different textures and um, the like different plants have different roots and those have different textures. Um, you can have different um, hydration level in soil and different types of soil. And um, physically, it was a very, it's, it, it is a very rich um, experience. And um, there's, there's smells and um, visually very interesting. But there's part of me that I think just connects with nature. So growing up, um, you know, we, my, my younger brother and I, we were the kids who were riding their bikes around everywhere. We lived very close to Fish Creek Park, which is a provincial park um, right in um, Calgary in the south. And we, I mean, you know, those were back in the days where it'd be like in the summer, it'd be like, okay, we're going to go bike riding. And, you know, the parents are like, okay, come home for dinner, right? <clears throat> and we would disappear for like the day. Um, and, you know, would go into Fish Creek or, you know, any of the, an, any number of parks um, nearby. And that's kind of how we would spend our days. And then later um, in high school and university, I got into mountain biking and did a lot, a lot of cycling um, in the mountains, in like local Calgary parks and, you know, sort of in the summer and in high school, um, you know, we would ride like 80 kilometers in a day, like all over the city and it wouldn't phase us. We would do it, you know, today and then tomorrow we would do it again. And the day after would be like, okay, where are we going to ride our bikes now? Um, and so Although I was never really a plant person, um, I was in nature a lot. And um, I think Kokedama really brings that into the home, um, especially in the winter. <laughs> There's always such a conflict of um, <clears throat> not just being a part of nature, but physically moving around that much, going into a profession where you're sitting down all day presumably eight minimum hours a day, but some of those office jobs, particularly coding, could be longer. Um, it's quite a big, uh, what is it? Not spiritual, but energy shift, right? I mean, if you're doing 80 kilometers a day cycling, uh, that's that's pretty hardcore. That's like, I mean, I don't know how many hours that would be for you, but that's that's quite a lot of time and energy and focus that you're spending on uh, on being active. 
and actually in a mindful sense, not thinking about anything other than cycling, presumably, um, and then going into a work environment, which is kind of a strange, a strange yeah, that's kind of a big change. Well, it's interesting. Uh, I never thought of it that way, but yeah, that's true. Well, it's, anyways, um, okay, so where were we? I've lost my train of thought. Mm. Ah, boy, I'll have to cut this part out, thinking. Um, what were we just talking about? Um, oh, getting into Kokedama. Yeah, and then what? Drew me yeah, what's drawing you into it? So maybe I'll, I'll switch it up this way. Um, so you have this corporate career, uh, well, uh, presumably at the end, this very corporate career, you're feeling <clears throat> something's missing, you're looking for a hobby or something to do, tactile, you find Kokedama. Um, what is it, I mean, do you remember the first time you built one? Like what that experience is like and why it became so meaningful for you? Was it more just over time, it was something that just happened to fill up a couple hours of the day and then it just became a passion? Or was there sort of a moment where uh, it actually speaks to you specifically? I, I have no idea actually what, what it was like for you. I don't know that there was a particular aha moment where, like, I can't remember it specifically. Um, but I mean, like, I do know that I had that, um, that feeling of connecting with myself, that I was not getting at work. And, um, I'm really good at uh, deriving my identity through uh, relationships or um, sort of apart from that, you know, like things like job or uh, religion, like those types of things um, in, a, in a not particularly healthy way. Um, and um, Kokedama was not mm. those things. It was a way for me to um, be just me and be in my body and experience the physical sensations of making it. Um, Do you think you would say that you're aware of those things at the time and that there's an intent or is that something in reflection hindsight you know is it like so for example maybe a more specific way to put it is you're looking for a hobby and are you having a self-narrative like i just fucking i just need to be by myself i just need something where i'm gonna be able to be be me or is it something where you know there's an intuition that you just need something else to do and in reflection you realize that these relationships and this um, manner of living that's weighed against other people's expectations which I, or perhaps a, a different way to put it would be your expectations of what other people are expecting you that's uh, fucking confusing but <clears throat> um, is that something you're realizing now in hindsight or is that something even then was fairly you know um, ob uh, not obvious was it fairly 
intentional and were you really aware at that time that, that you needed to do something like that? It's definitely a hindsight type of revelation. Um, at the time, it was just an intuitive thing where it was like, I feel like I need something. Um, and the and finding that when I made Kokedama that there was something there that connected me with me, I guess. Um, and it wasn't it wasn't until like way later after I started my business and started like um, and I like I started my business because I was like, oh, it's like I the way I experience Kokedama, I want other people to experience it. And I and like that's why I started the business. And I'm like, if you're looking at these in their homes or in their office spaces or wherever they are, that they will, you know, feel some of that connection with nature and like kind of disconnect from the city a bit and like connect with themselves. Um, but it wasn't like I taught my first class and then it was then that I realized that like it's in the doing and like the making of the Kokidama. Um, and I learned a little bit later that I was actually using Kokidama as a mindfulness um, um, practice, right. a practice. And um, and so like at first when I taught my class, it was just like, oh, uh, Kokidama making. But when I teach classes now, it's um, I call it mindfulness and Kokidama making where we focus on our physical senses as we make the Kokedama um, sort of as an introduction to mindfulness and how we can um, how we can have or or apply mindfulness in our everyday activities um, and really to be more um, connected to ourselves that way putting a pin on mindfulness and connection, which I think is we need to talk about. Um, just going quickly back to sort of the art and the process of making Kokedama. So um, you talked about doing your first workshop. And I think all, uh, particularly art is like this, but I think all hobbies must be like this, where at the beginning it's almost uh, by numbers, you know? It's like, um, how do you take a picture? Well, you know, you point the camera in a certain way, you hit the shutter. And it's only later after, let's say, thousands, hundreds of thousands of frames, something that you start, if presumably if you have a connection to it, that you start thinking about it, um, whether it's an abstract, personal, subconscious, whatever way. So, so when you're building a kokedama, um, if we can try to rewind, this is always impossible to do without some kind of retrospective hindsight, but um, you know, let's say the first workshop at that stage, are you teaching it that, well, it's called a moss ball, so we need moss, so we make it into a ball, and we pick a plant, and you just do this, and you know, you're good. Um, is that how it is for you? And then from an art form, is there already an intent that they can be this way uh, in the sense of size, shape, type of plant? I mean, for those who haven't seen uh, your work, there's everything from trees to underwater plants, things that are 
micro-size to, you know, they can be anything. I've seen some fantastic weird things that you're shot. Um, that's where I think uh, this concept or the use of the word art comes from, uh, because it's not this rote, you know, factory-like atmosphere, corporate atmosphere where everything, you know, the only way to cook a dam is this exact plant in this exact way, this exact size with the exact soil, and then you're always winning. Um, you're experimenting with a lot of stuff. So, um, yeah, I just want to understand, like, how much intent is there and what is the process of, I don't know, do you design them? Do they come naturally? Um, do you make them from whatever plant is on hand? Do you search out for things? I, I don't understand any of it because I have not taken any workshops. <laughs> well, we're going to have to get it, get you out. <laughs> yeah, I think so. But for me... Um, I mean, like that first class, it was just teaching people how to make it. Sort of, this is the first step, and this is, you know, and, and you know, I, I would give them a little bit of, um, you know, sort of the spiel about, you know, this is what Kokedama means, and, you know, um, all that kind of thing. But there wasn't that uh, sort of mindfulness, spiritual side to it. Um, when I'm making them, I look at each plant and I try to feel the aesthetic of the plant. Um, and so sometimes that means that, um, you know, I, I feel like, oh, the ball needs to be larger or that the plant should be offset and not in the middle or that it should be slanted and um, and how uh, full it should be. Um, because a lot of the kokedama, they'll have um, two or three of the same type of plant in there or maybe different plants. Um, and I, I try to kind of experience the it's almost like letting the plant tell me like this is how I want to be and um, and then like making that happen um, and there are times I mean there's sort of staple plants that it's like business-wise it's like uh, people love these um, and so I, I make them quite regularly uh, but at the same time, you know, I will, you know, cruise garden centers or like Home Depot or, you know, that kind of thing. And sometimes a plant will just speak to me. And, um, and it's bad because I can justify buying it at retail price even um, because I'm like, oh, well, it's in quotes for the store. Um, but really there's some connection that I'm feeling um, that I'm like, I feel like the plant needs me to do this. Um, and then so I, you know, inevitably end up <laughs> purchasing the plant and, um, and, and seeing where that leads um, as a Kogedama. Yeah. Going back to mindfulness then and the spiritual aspect, I mean, there's a, from an enlightenment perspective, I think there's a Buddhist understanding that says something like um, 
if you're focused too much on the conclusion or where you think you needed to need to end up, um, you lose your way on the path. Um, but if you just stick to the path and concentrate where you are on the road, it'll inevitably leave you lead you to where you need to be. Um, you know, so when listening to you talk about even um, this phrase of letting, uh, I mean, it's always hard to put it to words, but letting a plant tell you intuitively what the shape ought to be. I mean, there's a, always a, a phrasing instinct where you're like, well, that sounds kind of weird, you know, plants don't speak. Um, but I, I think I understand it. Um, you know, but in your understand, I mean, in your, sorry, in your experience, is that something that's, um, yeah, in your brain? Is it something that, I don't know, happens intuitively? Is it something that, you know, let's say you do a coffee plant or you're researching what a coffee, a tr presumably tree or bush, whatever they are, um, looks like in the wild and emulating that? Or is there, like, how much structure is there uh, in this process? Uh, especially knowing you can, and as it turns out, you're a very structured, uh, analytical way of approaching things. I mean, you have a 3D uh, printing machine here. So you like to engineer stuff and to make sure there's specification. Um, yeah, what is that like for you when you say a, tr a plant talks to you? Is it something, um, do you think it comes from your head or is, are you actually feeling like when you see uh, two different coffee plants, they tell you to do different things? Uh, you know, what does that mean for you? <laughs> there is zero structure in it. Um, I, I feel it in my heart. Um, and yeah, I, like I want, like I don't research, like I'll research like plant care and things like that. And, um, but I won't really research like, oh, what does this plant look like in the wild? Like, um, I uh, yeah, I don't look at that at all, and it's really uh, the individual plant that's in front of me. And like, so when I make the coffee plant ones, like typically there'll be like three or four stems kind of a thing in there. Um, and I sometimes I'll only put one stem, and sometimes there'll be three or four or five. Um, and it's like while I'm working with it and like sort of removing the old soil and um, but playing with the, the plant that's come out of the pot where I don't know I just it's like I feel like these groups of plants go together and like this group goes together um, and so there's no structure there I think in um, technical things I can get very technical, like in 3D printing or um, videography or photography. Um, there's definitely some very technical aspects to it. And um, and even in the making of the kogedama, like the, the, the soil that I'm picking and um, the way that I'm working with it and sort of depending on the size of the, the ball, um, you know, there are technical aspects there that I work to perfect, but the, the allowing the plant to speak is very much a feeling.
I've been doing a lot of reflection uh, for people that, well, I'm taking pictures of you too, but I've been doing a lot of reflection on my photography practice. I mean, for those who don't know as well, Kane also is an accomplished photographer and a videographer. I and mean, there's a lot of stuff that you do. Yeah. Yeah, it makes me start to realize I need to uh, get more active in a uh, totally Asian and you know self-conscious way, but um, <laughs> I'm not doing enough. Uh, <laughs> Don't go there. Yeah, yeah. It's not happy. Oh, man. But um, yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, this, you know, I, I was uh, feeling a little, well, this year in general, I've been quite whiny and uh, my photography practice certainly struggled for a while, but um, uh, actually, Kate Madden, uh, whom you know, mm -hmm. she sent me a, a video on some street photographer talking about, um, you know, essentially had a, uh, and I can't remember if it was getting over these low points or if it was just talking about street photography as a practice in modern era. It was talking about stories and these intuitions and moving away from this photojournalism school of, I think he graduated in the early 80s, so he's, it's film still, but he's carrying, you know, like, like you see a lot of people, multiple bodies, multiple lenses. And now he goes out, uh, I mean, not to plot with a Leica, everybody has a fucking Leica on the internet, but, um, <clears throat> you know, it's a set 50 mil uh, rangefinder. Uh, so essentially for people who aren't photographers, it's almost like a point and shoot. Um, and he says that his intent now when he goes out is to just tell stories, um, whatever that means to him. And then all of a sudden I felt like I could uh, take pictures again because that rigor and this idea of what photography is supposed to mean is changing. Um, yeah, these intuitive ideas and this heart feeling is a fascinating, it's a weird thing to think about. And I wonder, yeah, there must be people that think about that, think, uh, feel that way as corporate programmers who actually connect with that environment. Uh, not me, but somebody. <laughs> it's funny because um, even in software development, I was very um, intuitive. <laughs> and I would come up with solutions to problems. And, and, you know, the team would be like, so, you know, why are you doing it that way? And I would respond like, well, it, it feels right. Mm. Don't you think it feels right? And the team would be like, no, please elaborate. Like, what does that mean? Yeah. Mm. Um, and I couldn't always answer it. Um, and it was just sort of this, well, my experiences have led me here to create this solution. So it feels right. Um, we'll go back to this mindfulness. I mean, you had, even then, uh, this inner voice that you felt you could trust about that, which I think is fascinating. Uh, I don't know if it's how you raised your self-expertise. A lot of people struggle with that, even when they have the intuition that, I mean, I can use the word creativity, I think, there, that they um, want to approach a visible problem in a way that feels from the, air quotation, from the heart, um, either will work or feels right to try, but so many of us feel repressed about that. I think as well, it might reflect on you becoming an entrepreneur uh, and doing all the work that you have because you don't seem to be held back too much by those voices. And then leading, of course, into 
uh, where you are today, now, not just as a business person, but you know, sitting in front of me as a transitioning uh, woman. It's, uh, these are all things that are so daunting and so big that I think a lot of people would uh, want to be on the opposite side. And not, even, not only question, but just say no. They're like, no, that's just incorrect. You know, the way you're approaching this problem is incorrect. So just stop asking those questions and just do it the way we're told. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, even the Kokedan is fascinating to, to learn about you, uh, that it pre-exists even the making plants stage. It seems to be something that's just a part of you. I don't know. But I think at the same time, I did live a lot of my life that way, following, you know, following the rules, right? Um, go to school, get a job, um, buy a car, save up for a motorcycle, and then not get a motorcycle because you proposed to your girlfriend, and now you're going to spend that on a down payment for your first um you know condo and um and you know like buying property and buying more cars and having kids and um you know buying more property and um and working more and buying more things like um that was very much part of my um experience as well um, and maybe with this intuition kind of lurking in the back, repressed. Yeah. Yeah, we are running out of time for part one, but I guess I'll just reflect too, uh, and maybe we can quickly talk about, um, yeah, this repressed intuition, kokodama, entrepreneurship, and we haven't even really gotten into the atelier and how things have been going. I, I remember, I was hoping too we could talk about, uh, um, the show that should go on one day, you know, this idea of performing Kokodama as a performance art is fascinating to me. Um, but maybe as just sort of a cliffhanger, so to speak, uh, we could talk about this idea of repression, uh, self-identity, awareness, mindfulness, um, into where you are, I mean, you know, as an identity. In this last year, as much as I like to whine about my life, uh, Kane, you've been on an adventure, uh, on a very interesting path. Um, I mean, how much of this is all in a synergy and works together, you think, as a narrative, or how much of it has been a, a sudden change for you um, within your gender transformation, within the TVA, with, you know, this last, let's say, five, seven years? Uh, is this something that's been building up to this point, or is this something where there was a breaking point and all of a sudden everything flipped on its head and now? you're kind of spiraling in space. So, like, how, how do you feel right now about that in reflection? I was just imagining myself spiraling in space um, <laughs> with like no tether and just like spinning off into like the unknown. Um, it definitely feels like that sometimes. I, um, it has definitely been this uh, building up where starting Kokedama has like got me um, you know, sort of to step away from this is how you're supposed to live your life to 
experience the moment that you're in and like understanding that actually this is life this moment and even with us having this conversation like this moment right now this is life it's not what we're planning to do tonight or um you know sort of next year it's right now and really we might not make it to tomorrow or next year so it's right now um but sort of that transition from corporate to like working on like uh working on my kogedama business part-time um like that was a big pay cut you know making the medium bucks as a you know software development consultant um it's a pretty good money like we never if we wanted to buy something we could mostly buy it if it wasn't you know ten thousand dollars right and even then it was like we might be able to make this work um to you know basically cutting that in half because you know going part-time and then eventually going full-time and having um let's just say on on the, the lower end of the income spectrum and it makes it made me question um who am i if i am not this person who society told me that i had to be um go to school get a job buy stuff um and like procreate you know like if i'm not that and i'm like well i'm not going to do that corporate thing um i i want to follow this artistic path and and i think i can still um i i think i can still do okay and like be able to eat and have a roof over my head um well then who am i if my career doesn't define me if my possessions do not define me then then who am i and i i really think that that led to i mean sort of you know as a journey led me to um understand all the things about myself that i was repressing when you're no longer following this um you know highway that society says um this is the recipe for your life this is who you need to be this is the way you're supposed to be and you're you're going to be uh you know in quotes happy if you follow this um to who am i why am i why do i do the things that i do um and are the things that i'm doing like are those just habits are those things that people have told me to do or are they things that i want to do are they things that i need and it led me on this path of discovery where um there was there was an aha moment where i realized uh in the shower that um that i am transgender and that um and a couple of days after that i was like freaking out at myself and i like i am not the freak out type of person 
I'm the type of person where if there's an emergency, um, I'm taking stock of the situation and like, what are the things we need to do to get out of danger? And then like, once we're not in danger, um, then we have time to freak out. But on this particular moment, um, morning, um, I just completely had a panic attack. Um, and so I, I kind of knew that like, this is the real deal. Um, and it was just like a couple days later where I really admitted to myself, it's like, okay, yeah, you're trans and you've kind of been trans your whole life. You, but just, uh, in so much denial because growing up in the seventies and nineties, uh, there's no trans visibility, especially in Calgary where, I mean, still we're a little bit backwater. Um, and not really fully understanding that this is a thing, not understanding that, um, this is something that could apply to me. Um, instead I, um, I took those, I'm going to call them, um, feminine leading urges and pushing them down, writing them off as perversion or, um, uh, freakishness. And like that seemed more okay than admitting like you, that I am trans, that I am a woman. Um, and it just so happens that I have body parts that don't really, uh, work for that. We're connecting with, <clears throat> well, how's that for a cliffhanger for part two? You know, earlier when you mentioned, uh, um, you know, dutifully being this, the male, first male heir of a generational family. I mean, jumped in probably too quick and cut you off, but just, you know, Korean culture is renowned for being even more pro-Confucian than most of Asian. And so those roles and those, uh, not just gender, but yeah, age and whatever uh, identities are instilled upon people, typically with a threat of violence. Uh, and it's fascinating, uh, this idea of a role that you're raised to believe you're supposed to play, whether you're aware of it or not. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, this uh, catchphrase of so-called toxic masculinity rests on this too. Uh, you're ex you, as you expressed it, this freaking on the shower because you've played the part and you find yourself in disarray. You presumably did everything right, uh, whatever that was, checked all the boxes, mm -hmm. and you find yourself uh, not satisfied, not ready for retirement. Uh, and that's something, yeah, well, that's something we're going to take up next week. No, uh, next yes. time we get to <laughs> well, uh, we'll get into that. Uh, okay, so um, it's fascinating. I, uh, uh, I don't know how to wrap up because I want to talk about it more, but we'll leave it at this. How about like we did last time that won't ever air? Uh, just a quick shout out if you feel like it about um, how I can get in touch with you. And then, you know, you and I will discuss whether we even... Uh, release this as two parts of one whole or a separate thing. But uh, um, I have a feeling when we can meet together and we can now find out the second half of your life story, um, 
at least as far as the last two years in relation to the art form. I think there's there's a lot more there. But uh, yeah, let's let's finish. Kane, did you feel like uh, uh, doing a plug for anything that you're doing, or uh, should we just press stop on the mic right now? Um, well, you gotta always, you know, um, plug the social media. So you can find me on um, Instagram, um, kogedama.ca. So K-O-K-E-D-A-M-A.ca. Um, that's my business, and um, you can find my personal account on Instagram as well, um, Kane Chow. So C-A-I-N-E-C-H-O-W. Um, yeah, and I love having conversations and um, like as long as, you know, I like to say, you know, as long as we're keeping things classy, you can ask me anything you want. Speaking of local podcasts, Karen herself has a great podcast where she sits down with her daughter to learn about what being a teen right now actually is about. Need some teen explaining to catch you up on recent things? Press play on their conversations on That's a Thing? You can find their informational sessions on any podcasting platform or through the APN website www.albertapodcastnetwork.com. They're in the movies and pop culture section. Just scroll to the bottom. A quick sponsor note. Many of you know my recent health issues. I mean, who gets diagnosed with epilepsy at age 41? Hashtag not bitter. And I've been very vocal of my amazement of the awesomeness of Alberta Health Services. But outside of particular chronic or major emergency issues and the speed in which their system integrates everything, at least compared to the Toronto I left seven years ago, their amazing general services. Shout out to 811, nurses rock have been a key part when Helen and I worried our son Emerson was sick. As he grows older, he's learning to have great confidence in our health system. They have a quick 30-second spot that they'd like you to hear. We ask these children if they know when to go to emergency and when there are other options. If you got in a car accident or like having trouble breathing, I would go to emergency if I had a really bad hockey skate cut on the neck. They're there to treat people that are really sick or really hurt. If you have an emergency or if you're not sure, we're here to help. Know your options. Call HealthLink at 811 or visit ahs.ca slash options.